Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider a topic that we've been fascinated by since before we even learned to read, fairy tales. Okay, full confession. Our guest today, in addition to being one of the world's leading authorities on fairy tales, folklore, and children's literature, is also one of my father's oldest friends. In fact, you could say my relationship to Jack Zipes is a bit folkloric because I've been hearing stories about him my whole life, but until this conversation, we'd never met. Jack and my dad grew up together, but Jack spent most of his career in the Midwest while my dad stayed here on the East Coast. Jack has had an astonishing career, so I was also excited to get a chance to talk to him about a subject that he knows better than almost anyone. It all started this winter when Princeton University Press made a bit of a splash by publishing a new English translation of a book by the Austrian writer Felix Zalton called The Original Bambi, The Story of a Life in the Forest. As you might guess, this was the book that the 1942 Disney movie was based on. And as you also might guess, the book and the movie differ in substantial and important ways. Felix Zalton was born in Budapest in 1869, and he grew up in Vienna. The grandson of an Orthodox rabbi, he underwent a social and political awakening when he witnessed and experienced firsthand the growing anti-Semitism of late 19th and early 20th century Europe. His Bambi novel was originally published in 1922, and it wasn't intended for children. Jack describes it as, quote, a brilliant and profound story of how minority groups throughout the world have been brutally treated, an allegory about the weak and powerless that is both dystopic and sobering. It's also a celebration of the natural world and a plea for animal rights. When we saw that Jack Zipes was the translator of this new Bambi book, we knew we'd finally found the perfect moment to invite him on the show. Jack is Professor Emeritus of German and Comparative Literature at the University of Minnesota. He has written, translated, and edited dozens of books, including the original folk and fairy tales of the Brothers Grimm, Why Fairy Tales Stick, and Don't Bet on the Prince, Contemporary Feminist Fairy Tales of North America and England. In addition to his scholarly work, Jack is an active storyteller in public schools and has worked with children's theaters in Europe and the United States. Among his many awards are a Guggenheim Fellowship, the International Brothers Grimm Award, and the World Fantasy Convention Award for Lifetime Achievement. In 2018, Jack founded the publishing house Little Mole and Honey Bear. Jack didn't begin his career intending to focus on fairy tales. We asked him about how the political upheavals of the late 1960s and his own experiences at NYU at that time led to what would become his life's work. Here's what he said. I was hired by New York University in uh, 1968. America was really in the midst of a political upheaval on many levels. Mm-hmm. And I immediately became involved in a lot of different political parties at the university. And I began more and more doing somewhat radical initiatives at the university. And then in 1970, when Kent State happened, 
That is the shooting of, I think it was three or four students at Kent State and also at Jackson State. Students were shot and killed. Throughout the United States, there was a huge uproar. Almost every university stopped teaching the way they used to teach and uh, began discussing the war, why we were in Vietnam and so on. And I, you know, wanted to contribute to the movement mm-hmm. and wound up becoming the head of the entire strike at NYU. We took over six buildings. We didn't cancel classes, but we asked all professors to discuss the war and not their subject. Uh, I only accepted the position if we would rotate it, but mm-hmm. nobody wanted to rotate and become the head of the strike. The surprise! <laughs> yeah. So I was sort of vaulted <laughs> into this position and every day met with the president of the university, very conservative and very angry, particularly at me, because he thought I caused everything, which I didn't do. And they were afraid, you know, that if the police came in, they would harm the students, then the parents would sue the university and so on and so forth. And there were many debates with him that I had. In the meantime, the university kept functioning. I mean, Mm -hmm. all the classes were held. Some were held off campus. It, It was really like a dream world in terms of how the university and professors were going to teach their courses. So that went on for a week or two. And uh, in one of the buildings, there was a special uh, research group. They uh, supposedly had some type of machine on the top floor and had taken over that building. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, we had a vote in our daily meetings of the committee that ran the strike. We said we reject this takeover and we reject anything that you do that's violent. We didn't know that they had actually had dynamite in that building and were thinking of blowing up. Uh, Yeah, they did. My girlfriend at that time was one of the radicals in that building. (laughs) Uh, But they kept lying, you know, to me and to the committee and said, we don't have anything in the building. And after two weeks, there was a march on Washington. So most of the student support at NYU went in buses down to Washington. I stayed with the committee. We really didn't want them to go down because they really defended the buildings that we had, all the students. And so there was no defense. And I was told that the police on a certain day were going to attack all the buildings and take them back over. So I then arranged with all the student groups in high schools for about 30,000 students to come and form a circle around the major building to protect the radical students inside. Mm-hmm. At noon, all of a sudden, everybody inside ran out and merged with everyone. The police ran in and some professors who were on the side of the anti-strike movement ran in and they managed to uh, cut the cords that led to the radicals. It set off the dynamite. Fortunately, nobody was killed. They managed to turn it off. And I was really disgruntled because of the fact that my my girlfriend didn't know about this, but she could have signaled that things were going awry inside. Mm-hmm. And so I was brought before a grand jury several times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they got mad at me because I, I kept speaking theoretically about the, the wars and 
and walks and this and that. And at any rate, I was saved. I had won some type of grant and I was going to East Germany in 19, right after the strike for six months. It was a real learning experience. It also gave me time to meet with some of the leading great artists in East Germany. Most of them were dissidents. And I used to smuggle things over the border from East Berlin to West Berlin and so on and so forth. But then I came back and my chair of the department said, you have two more years and you're never going to get a job in the United States. Uh, To make a long story short, I was blacklisted. No department I wrote to would ever give an answer. And the only person who saved me was a famous critic from the Frankfurt School named Hans Meyer. He knew about my difficulties, and he was a very pugnacious type of person. He walked into the dean's office in Milwaukee and said, you have to offer a Jack Zipes a position (laughs) with a big German accent. They all loved him there. And the dean said, okay, okay, (laughs) we'll invite him. Uh, My girlfriend had gone out with me to Milwaukee and lived with me in Milwaukee. She was uh, getting a master's or PhD in children's education. And I began reading all her books and they dealt with the socialization of children uh, from different perspectives. And I realized if there's going to be a movement that really digs in and has roots in the majority of people, we have to learn how to teach critically and develop methods in which children would be able to begin to think for themselves and continue to be curious, ask questions, and also take an interest in groups in in the United States with which they were not familiar. Mm -hmm. I want to fast forward to today and talk about Felix Selton's novel, Bambi, which was the source material for the Disney movie but it differs dramatically from Disney. So I'm going to quote you now from your introduction to your translation of the book. You say, Salton's novel is a brilliant and profound story of how minority groups throughout the world have been brutally treated, even when they try to live peacefully in their own environment. Read in the original language and in its socio-historical context, Bambi is, if anything, dystopic and sovereign, for it reveals the cutthroat manner in which powerless people are hunted and persecuted for sport. That is different than Disney, yes. Yes. Um, (laughs) You also say that Bambi is indeed Sultan, and Sultan is Bambi. So could you tell us about how Salton felt about his Jewish identity and how that changed over time as he faced increasing anti-Semitism? Yeah, uh, we have to remember that Sigmund Salzmann was his original name. And even though his family was not very religious, he was highly aware of the fact that he was Jewish and that Jews had to confront a bias against them in all sorts of ways. He left high school at 16 and then fell in with a group of really brilliant writers at that time in a cafe, Riedel, that he used to attend. Most of the 
men who were in this particular cafe were Jewish. And he decided uh, to begin uh, his new career in journalism. It was dangerous to be mocked as a Jew. So he uh, wrote under the name Felix Salton and became a very significant journalist by the beginning of the 20th century. What I would like to stress is that he was highly aware of what anti-Semitism was. And since he wasn't a religious Jew, uh, he wanted to assimilate. He was a very contradictory person. He wanted to become like the great Jewish writers at the cafe. At the same time, he admired the grace and the education and the ways that the uh, upper classes lived. Mm-hmm. Heinrich Heiner wrote a poem in which he said, I don't have it in front of me, but it, it goes something like this. You have plagued me for many, many, many years. I have put up with all of this. You have put up with me. Now I am getting older and I feel that I am becoming just as bloody like you are. Mm. This is somewhat what happened to Sultan. For instance, in the First World War, uh, he supported uh, the Austrian uh, nobility and the Germans up until about 1915 or 16. And then he be, he realized that he had to come out of his shell. He was influenced by Zionism and he reclaimed his Jewishness. And he wanted, I think, to write about this in some way, but he didn't want to write about it in some sort of autobiographical, factual way. And so Bambi, to me, is a story about his life, Mm. a story about him and how he survived the bigotry and realized that he would never be able to attain what he wanted, and his life was going to be one of loneliness and one in which he had to watch out because he was marked to be killed. How does that show up in Bambi? You know, what is it about the Bambi story that shows the loneliness, the marked for execution, those elements that you were just describing? Bambi is wonderful in terms of understanding Salton. Because when Bambi is born, he is born in the forest, and his mother is not exceptional. She's not a queen. She's just an ordinary deer. And she cultivates his sensibility. At first, Bambi is rather innocent and doesn't understand what is happening until the hunters come, and he realizes that he's nothing special, that he, he, like any of the other animals, could be killed uh, at the will of these hunters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then he begins learning through experience, through contact with the older deer, with seeing how his mother is killed and how some of his friends are also killed. And so it's a whole learning experience in the forest, which you could say is a section of, you know, Vienna, where he grew up. Mm -hmm. And it's a war zone all the time. Bambi does become, to a certain extent, 
really knowledgeable. He becomes wise, but he is not any type of hero. He's just mm -hmm. fortunate to have escaped the many killings that go on around him. Yeah. How does the Bambi novel differ from the Bambi movie? And why do you think Disney made the changes it did? Oh, the difference is so great. It's unimaginable. Disney always sided with elites. Almost all his films are about elitism and about himself. And though he may have liked animals, as some people say, he was not very compassionate about uh, animals, even though people say that the film Bambi is a uh, animal rights film. It's far from that. Mm -hmm. So the, the beginning of Bambi just shows how bad and putrid the film is going to be, because when Bambi is born in the film, he's treated like a prince. All the animals of the forest gather around this child and celebrate this child as the new prince. It's sort of like the celebration of the Austrian aristocracy. Bambi is just common in the novel. He becomes more than common through his courageous way of living. In the film, it's just natural that everybody should sing about love. This is a film about loving animals and there's thumper thumping away. And I mean, the stupidity of the film is so outrageous that as I was doing research on this book, I literally almost threw up. So yes, there are huge differences between a really superb novel and a film that should probably be burned. Yeah, I had a similar experience. <laughs> I rewatched the film yesterday, actually, after having read your translation, and I found it almost unwatchable. I mean, just truly terrible. Um, one of the defining themes in the book is loneliness. As Bambi matures, he chooses an increasingly solitary existence. And to me, it's a choice he seems somewhat mournful about, or at least ambivalent about. Yes. And you noted in your introduction, I'm quoting you again here, animals who don't want to be killed have no choice but to become loners. Can you tell us what you meant by that, both in terms of animals' relationship to man and also Bambi as a Jewish allegory? What Salton seems to be saying is that we can only live for ourselves. He doesn't see a way that all the animals can join together because they squabble quite a bit. And, and sometimes they even kill one another. And so this is very much an existential novel. It reminds me a great deal of what Camus wrote in his essay on Sisyphus, that life is like the struggle to roll the rock up a hill, mm -hmm. knowing it's going to roll back again the only meaning in life is in struggle and resistance. The thing I'm most struck by, other than a newfound awareness of just how much the Bambi movie sucks, yeah. is this through line in Jack's professional life, that connection between children's literature and social change and the impact that books and movies have on children who are, of course, tomorrow's most powerful citizens. 
In his introduction to the new translation, when Jack talks about the movie Bambi, he says, the culture industry is adept at transforming feminism, anti-racism, justice, utopianism, etc., into commodities. This industry sucks the radical daydreams from which we all benefit into false hopes of a better future. Wow, that's a powerful statement. Yeah. I can't help thinking of some of the corporate responses to the protests after the murder of George Floyd and wondering whether it's not just the culture industry that does that. It's the easy way out, right? False hopes of a better future. The hard work is envisioning change, whether through daydreams or otherwise, and then working for it. Yeah. And making conscious choices about the books we give our kids. Yeah. Uh, we just want to flag one thing before this next part of our interview. In our conversation about early versions of written fairy tales, Jack refers to the 17th century French author Charles Perrault. In case you're not familiar with him, he's credited with writing the versions of some of the fairy tales we know best, including Cinderella, Puss in Boots, Little Red Riding Hood, Sleeping Beauty, and Bluebeard. But before we get to that, we asked Jack to use the story of Cinderella to explain how fairy tales change over time and why they remain popular. Here's what he said. I've become very interested in uh, memes, memes and memetics. A meme is a bit of relevant information that sticks in our brains because without that information, we might not be able to survive. Uh, we need to, to resolve whatever conflict there is in the world and in our brains if we're going to continue to live and understand what the world is about. So in Cinderella, the underlying message is that sibling rivalry can occur in a family and lead to conflicts within that family if a particular member of that family is uh, not considered to be equal to the other children in the family. Mm -hmm. So Cinderella opens up a varied discussion with regard to who is going to inherit or who's going to be recognized as a member of a family who is going to be enabled to lead the life she wants to lead. Mm -hmm. Cinderella is a fascinating story because all children experience one way or another a feeling that I may not be part of this family or I may be disowned. And so that becomes sort of a meme passed on through stories. Mm -hmm. You know, for instance, uh, Little Red Riding Hood is a story about rape, about the violation of a young girl who's made to seem responsible for her own rape because she told the wolf where the grandmother lives. And nowadays, we've got about a hundred or more, a thousand more feminist fairy tales in which that's contested. Yes. But the key meme is still there. These stories reflect that we want to resolve the conflicts that we have in these fairy tales, and we want to create a more compassionate, a more feeling-sensitive society in which a child does not feel abandoned. That's why we continue to tell them because we have resolved the problems. Right, right. Um, there's probably nobody on the planet who knows more about Grimm's fairy tales than you do. And I'm wondering if you could just tell us one or two things that people would be surprised to learn about 
the Grimm's brothers and their work. There is a German professor by the name Heinz Rölicke, who is my god, so to speak. <laughs> now, now, who <laughs> definitely knows much more than I do. But at any rate, the Grimm's collected well over the 300 or so that are quite often you know, produced. But what is striking in almost all of their work is that the struggling peasant or the youngest brother or the woman who doesn't want to be forced into some type of household labor or household chores, almost all of the fairy tales have a lot to do with underdogs. There's a whole group of about 10 or 15 tales about soldiers who quit the army because they were uh, being oppressed uh, and quite often considered fodder for the purposes of the rich people who didn't really serve in these armies and so on and so forth. So almost all of their tales, and we can come back to Cinderella, Little Red Riding Hood, Hansel and Gretel, and so raise social problems mm-hmm. that they or should end in a more just way than they are were being ended in Germany at that time. Mm-hmm. So they had this real sense of justice. Right, right. In doing research for this conversation, I was fascinated to learn about the importance of Catherine Delnois, who published several books of fairy tales in the 1690s. In fact, she was the person who coined the term fairy tale. Right. So can you tell us about her and the salon she formed and about early female authorship of fairy stories? Yeah, yeah, she is highly significant. The story about her life is fascinating. She was married off by her mother when she was 16, had four children, <laughs> tried to kill her husband. Uh, what? Who was a, uh, yeah, but she, That's crazy. She, she hated the husband. She didn't want to marry this uh, miscreant, I would say. Her husband was really terrible. And a lot of her story is still up in the air. Uh, at any rate... She did disappear with two of her children, at least, either to Spain or to England. We're not sure. And then all of a sudden, she comes back in 1690 to Paris and begins writing fairy tales. And she evidently had a huge amount of money because she founded her own salon. Women could not have jobs for the most part or professions. And the only way they could show how brilliant they were and educated they were, were at these salons where they would perform music or they would sing or they would tell tales. And so Madame Dolnois began introducing tales that stem from the oral tradition. She wrote about 15 to 25 tales during her lifetime Mm -hmm. that are all fascinating because they reveal to what extent she disliked the roles that women were forced into. None of the tales have anything to do with the oligarchy of her times. None of the tales have anything to do with the Christian church. She hated Christianity at that time. They all have to do with these wicked, sometimes very wicked, powerful fairies in the stories mm-hmm. who determine the fates of everybody. And uh, she became the most significant writer of literary fairy tales in the 1690s. 
And there's no doubt in my mind that Charles Perrault, who also was writing in 1697, he only wrote about eight tales, but they all were very similar or took off from a lot of the tales that Madame Daudoin wrote. And he undoubtedly did attend various of the salons. Why am I so not surprised that he got credit for work that came from (laughs) (laughs) in her salon? Oh, oh, definitely, definitely. But to his credit, he was really a great writer. Actually, he wrote a book defending women. Uh, It wasn't all that great. (laughs) But it was better than nothing. Yes, exactly. He was more aware than most men of his time. And his writing was significant. So we won't cancel him. Okay. Okay, good. In 2018, you founded an independent publishing house called Little Mole and Honey Bear that republishes unusual books for children and adults, largely published during, before, and after World War I and World War II. On the Little Mole and Honey Bear website, it says, we will unbury neglected authors and books from the 20th century before we are buried. History is doomed to repeat itself. We must preserve the things that make us human and stand up to forces that would tear our society apart. Can you tell us how do children's books do that? Yeah, uh, first of all, I would say that most of children's books uh, should be burned. Uh, (laughs) uh, You heard it here first. (laughs) (laughs) Children's book historian, Jack (laughs) No, they're commodities. They are designed you know, to pamper uh, children, to make them feel joyous and so on. They're silly and nonsense. Uh, Let's say maybe 90% should be burned. There's some really great writers out there and illustrators that are unique and really honest and want to tell stories or create pictures that are going to provoke children to want to write their own stories and to think for themselves about different situations so that they can determine how they themselves want to live their lives. I love the respect Jack has for kids, his faith in their ability to be mentally challenged and to rise to those challenges. All of the books he's published with Little Mole and Honey Bear have some kind of social justice element. Jack's personal favorite is called Tistu, the Boy with Green Thumbs of Peace. But I have to say my favorite is a picture book called Keetle the Great and All You've Ever Wanted to Know About Fascism. (laughs) You know, for kids. I mean, seriously, is that not the greatest title of all time? It has got to be. And if that's not enough, you have to see the illustrations. They are fabulous. There are these line drawings of a cranky little boy with a Hitler-esque face and his pet spiders and the book that he writes called Keetle's Kampf. Yeah, <laughs> that never gets old. Yeah. <laughs> my only regret is I didn't have a chance to read this book to my own children when they were young. Mine too. And I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. 
You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.